You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Father, we look to you. This is about you. We pray that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, that you would be worshipped. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Good morning. Happy New Year. I like that. A little, a little more lively than the uh, first service. But my name is Steg Wheeler, as Bill mentioned, a college pastor here at CBC, and been around here for a few months, so a little bit new to town, but what Bill failed to mention is the conversation we had in the office this week, and his, his uh, wisdom and his pastoral insight and his care for the younger generation. He walked through the office, and I was in there preparing and studying, and he said, hey, look on the bright side. It can't be worse than Cain's sermon, first sermon. <laughs> so I said... I'm going to take great hope in that, great confidence in that. It won't be worse than Cain's first sermon, so here we go. But I've got a love-hate relationship with New Year's. Um, there, there's a, a bit of it that seems a little cliche, right? The ball's going to drop every year. There's going to be some celebrity on there that no one really cares about hearing. And it's going to be the same thing every year, and we're going to stay up late as a result of that. But I do love college football playoffs. They're a little disappointing last night. Alabama's going to pull on a win. And it wasn't the best games, but there's some things I do love about New Year's, but what I love most about New Year's and what gets me most excited every year when you flip the calendar and get a fresh start on a new year is just a vision and a freshness of, that the new year brings. The old year behind us is gone, the new one's coming, and we get to, to have a, a bit of a, a freshness and a new start and an excitement that comes with that. And I love that about New Year's. It's one of my favorite parts. And so this, the, uh, as we think about this, some of you in the room who are planners, some of you have been thinking about uh, your New Year's resolutions for a while now. You've been journaling them. You've been thinking through, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to work out. I'm gonna, it's going to be different this year. I'm going to be healthier. I'm going to do all these different things. And for those of you in the room, you know who you are because you're familiar. And so I did a little research. I looked up the, the top New Year's resolutions from 2016. What does America want out of New Year's? What is, it, what is it that we're chasing after in our New Year's resolutions? Anyone guess the first one? Lose weight. That's what I thought, too. It actually wasn't. First one was to enjoy life to the fullest. Okay? First New Year's resolution, 2016, was to enjoy life to the fullest. Okay? It's a good thing. Second one was to live a healthier lifestyle. It's a little bit broad, you know. What does that mean? Does that mean eat better? Does that mean exercise more? I don't know. But live a healthier lifestyle. And our third and final one was to lose weight. I found a couple funny ones in there, too. One guy said he wanted to finish a whole stick of chapstick without losing it. Pretty impressive. I can honestly say I don't think I've ever done that. Um, but 
what was interesting was in this article it said that 8% of people achieved their goal in 2016, 8%. And so what I want us to do this morning is, is we are on the morning of a new year. we got a fresh start before us. So I want us to hit the pause button, okay? And we're going to reflect a little bit on the past year. And we're going to think ahead to the new year. But what we want to do is we want to let the Bible and the scriptures and the word of God inform what shapes our new year. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story in the, in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to keep going in Luke. And we're going to see a few things, just three things from Jesus that are going to inform our new year. And it's going to be a, a, one of the least suspecting of places because Jesus, in this story, is a 12-year-old boy. As you're flipping there, go to chap, uh, Luke chapter 2. There's a couple things that I love about this passage. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. It'll be on the screen behind you. But the, the few things I like in this passage, one is the uniqueness of it. Nowhere else in all the scriptures, not in any of the gospel accounts or anywhere else in the Bible, do we see Jesus as a, as a boy. We see him a pretty good bit as an infant. We see him a lot as a man from age 30 to 33 in his adult ministry. This is the only spot in all the scriptures we see him as a boy. And what's essentially happening here is we've got a big of, bit of a snapshot, a window, if you will, into Jesus' life. Put it this way. Let's take Bill Fowler. If we took a little snapshot of his life at age 12, a little window into his life, here's what we see. He'd be three foot nothing. He'd be eating cereal, Lucky Charms, watching Star Wars, kicking the dog, right? This is what we get. And that snapshot would essentially say, hey, this is what Bill's about. There's maybe a little more to him than that, but that's the gist of it, right? And what we see here in the scriptures is a snapshot of 12-year-old boy Jesus, and this passage is going to tell us what he's all about. It's going to reaffirm his identity. And what Luke does often throughout the Gospel of Luke is he foreshadows. He talks a little bit about what's to come, and in this passage we actually see a bit of the purpose and mission and design of Jesus Christ in his earthly life. So let's start in verse 41. And we'll go through verse by verse. We're just going to learn three things. Three things to set us on a trajectory in a new year towards godliness and towards growing in him. All right, here we go. Verse 41. Now his parents, Jesus' parents, that is, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Okay. So the feast of the Passover is is an annual event that every Jewish man and family would attend. Okay? We get a little picture and window into their life as we know that this is a good Jewish family, a pious Jewish family. They're doing all the right things. we got Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and they're going up to the Feast of the Passover. Their family is walking in obedience. We know that their journey now is from Nazareth to Jerusalem, which is about an 80-mile journey. They'd have to go east around Samaria and would end up in Jerusalem. According to Google Maps, about two hours and 44-minute drive. For them, they weren't driving. So it was a several-day journey would take maybe six, seven, eight days to get there. And as they entered into Jerusalem, what they would find is a city that is swelling with people. Jerusalem, most commentators believe, swelled about eight to ten times its size during this this time period because everyone was coming into town for the feast of the Passover. Picture an SEC football game right before the game starts. People everywhere, chaos everywhere. Picture Disney World, 3 p.m., Space Mountain on a Saturday. Right? Every parent's like, uh uh-uh. This is the picture we get, though, of a city that is vibrant with people. There's things going on everywhere. And what we know about Jesus that the text tells us is that he's a 12-year-old boy. He's a seventh grader. And oftentimes, I think we like to think about Jesus and his deity. We see him healing. We see him performing miracles. We see him doing all these awesome things in the Gospels. But sometimes we forget the fact that he was both fully God and fully man. 
and we fail to recognize and even study his, his humanity. So what are seventh grade boys like? He might have been a little gangly, could have had some acne, maybe his voice was cracking a little bit. If they had braces back in the day, he probably would have had them. Jesus at some point learned to write his name. He lost his baby teeth. He went through puberty. His knees probably hurt from growing pains. And we, we often don't equate these things with Jesus. But what's significant about the fact that he is 12, and, and oftentimes ages and numbers are very significant in the scriptures, and what's significant about this particular fact is that at age 13, we're the age that a Jewish man would come into full economic, social, and adult responsibilities. So this is the year before Jesus enters into manhood. So what would inevitably happen was any Jewish good father, which Joseph is, would be walking the streets with their son at this particular feast of the Passover, age 12, and teaching them. Hey, this is what this is all about. You see Jerusalem? It's the, that's the temple up there. It's the highest point. This is what the lamb is for. This is what our faith is all about. This is who we are as the people of God, mentoring him and walking him through Jerusalem as they went. And what we know from the text is that they attended the Passover celebration, probably about a seven-day celebration, and everything ends, everything's gone great, and this is where the story gets fun. They, get, they, they enter on their way home. So Mary and Joseph, they leave Jerusalem, they're headed back, they would travel in big bands of people at that time to be safe from robbers and thieves, and they get to their stop on the first night in the long journey, and Mary kind of looks over at Joseph, says, where's Jesus? Joseph looks back at Mary, I saw him with you last. And they kind of have to begin this scrambling process to find out where their son. And every parent in the room can associate with this feeling, right? We can identify with the way this feels. Even for my wife, Laura, and I, we experienced this this week. So I'm reading this passage, I'm studying, I'm thinking about this story, and I come in from work one day, it's about five o'clock, it's Thursday, and I get in the house and start talking to Lauren and catching up. Well, apparently, I left the door open in the house. We've got a two-year-old little daughter who's very mobile now, and I'm talking to Lauren, and, and Lauren kind of looks up at me, and she goes, where's Riley Kate? And there's that feeling. Your heart just sinks. I don't know. I hadn't seen her. You notice the door's out, so I'm running outside, and I'm looking in the yard. I'm looking in the street. Sometimes she'll try to get in the car and drive, so I'm looking in the car. Where is she? And Lauren looks at me. She goes, Steg, this is not funny. I said, I know. I'm not laughing. And we go, and finally Lauren comes around the back side of the house, and there's Riley Kate. And she's sitting in her playroom, playing with Mr. Potato Head. She's fine. But even in that three minutes of agony, I cannot begin to imagine what Mary and Joseph must have felt for three days of this. And it's easy to hate on them, right? Say, hey, how did you, you lost your son, that's one thing, much less you lose God, right? <laughs> and we know the reality, Jesus wasn't lost. He was right where he was supposed to be. But what, what we, what's, we often fail to remember is that their culture looked very different than ours. See, they lived in a communal culture. And there would be a safety with all their kids around their family and their neighbors and their friends and the people who would be journeying with them. They didn't have dog leashes walking their kids around like we see nowadays. They didn't have a find my iPhone, find my kid app that puts a GPS sensor on them and tells them exactly where they are at all times. They didn't have any of that. So we could see how this would happen, but I want us to look at verse 46 and what happens when they find him, what Jesus is doing. Three-day journey, so after three days, usually probably one day out of uh, Jerusalem towards Nazareth, one day back, then one day searching. Verse 46, after three days, they found him, and he's in the temple, sitting among the teachers, 
listening to them and asking them questions. So we have this picture of 12-year-old boy Jesus, the one who is God. He created the idea of learning and listening and teaching, and he formed and fashioned these men. And he is listening, and he's learning from them. It's a pretty amazing thought if you think about it. God as a young boy, listening and learning. And what we see at the beginning of this passage, right before it, And at the end of this passage, it's bookended by these two verses, and they talk about Jesus growing in wisdom and stature before the Lord. And this is what we see, a young Jesus listening and learning. So first thing we want to learn from Jesus in 2017, you ready? Be a humble learner. 2017, we want to learn from Jesus in this passage that we want to be humble learners. If God himself is going to sit at the feet of men and women and listen and learn, how much more should we? And the thing is, we never arrive. I think for me, I had this perception that the Christian life would look like, uh, maybe I would put my faith in Christ, that happened my sophomore year in college for me, then I would start growing in my faith, and maybe by about you know, five, six years in, I'd have it all figured out. All the sin would be taken care of, there wouldn't be any issues, and just cruise off in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and kinda end. It could not be more wrong. I think the process of growing happens about eight to 10 times slower than I want it to. And what we see is that we've got to be constant, humble learners. The scripture speaks of this often. In Proverbs, it says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So I pose the question for you this morning, how do you become and be a grower and a learner in 2017? What's your plan for this? How do you plan to learn and grow this year? Maybe you're a middle, middle school, high school student, and this is very applicable to you because you're around the age 12, 13, and you can look at Jesus and you can see his humility as God learning from people. And maybe it's for you, you just need to listen to your parents. I know what you're thinking. They don't know. They were, they were, they were in the 50s when they were growing up. Everything's different. They didn't have an iPhone. They don't understand my life. I get it. But the older I've gotten, the more I've come to realize they actually knew a lot more than I thought they did. And most everything they said is was pretty, pretty good, pretty right on. So maybe it looks like for you being a humble learner this year and listening to your parents. College students. Maybe for you it looks like finding someone who's a little bit ahead of you. Maybe there's a junior, you're a freshman, it's a junior or senior, and asking them, hey, what did you do in your time in college to help you grow in your relationship with the Lord? What were some mistakes you made? What, how can I learn from you? What does that look like? There's a quote that I love by a guy named A.W. Tozer, and he says, if you're in a room with 10 people, you should talk roughly a tenth of the time. If you're in a room with four people, you should talk about 25% of the time or a fourth of the time. And what he's saying there is not this legalistic idea that we have to think about how many percent am I talking? No, but what he's saying is there is value in other people, and we need to learn and glean wisdom from them, and that is a dose of humility. Maybe you're hearing you're a parent, and it's a new stage of life for you. Kids are off at college, you're an empty nester for the first time. Maybe it looks as simple as you getting in touch with another mom in the church or a friend and saying, hey, this is new for me. I'm used to parenting and parenting and parenting. It's all I've known for 20-something years, and now shouldn't even answer the phone but once a week. What do you do in the sadness and the loneliness? What's your advice for me? How can I grow and learn? Let's be humble learners in 2017. But notice this, Jesus wasn't just a learner in this passage. We see more than this. 
he's not only learning, verse 47, notice what happens. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So at age 12, we see Jesus in his humanity, but we also get a little bit of a glimpse of his deity, don't we? The fact that he was both fully God and fully man. Because as a 12-year-old boy, he was amazing these Jewish scribes and scholars who, they knew their stuff. And they are amazed, and and it says his parents were actually astonished. The word means they were struck out of their senses. They were blown away. When's the last time a 12-year-old boy blew you away with his wisdom and insight? Probably hadn't happened to any of us in this room. But Jesus is amazing, and he's astonishing them by his understanding and his answers. And it says even his parents were astonished. I think that's interesting, because you think about what was their astonishment. Now think about Mary. Maybe she was astonished by the answers she was giving. I don't know. But maybe she was just thinking, I have been looking everywhere for you. And she was astonished by the reality that after three days, here was her 12-year-old boy. And I love this because what we see is a glimpse of some mom anger, right? She is worked up. She's been searching everywhere. She's frustrated. We all know that look we get from mom sometimes. And here comes Mary. And look what she says in verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother, Mary, says to him, son, there it is. Why have you treated us so? What were you thinking? That's the I'm disappointed in you, I'm not mad at you. That's the worst. Behold, your father and I, notice the language she uses, your father and I, this same father who's been mentoring you, the same father who's been showing you the temple, the same father who's been teaching you how to be a man, this man and I, we have been looking and searching for you in great distress. And what Jesus says back is a bit shocking. He says, why were you looking for me? Now, I don't know about you, but as a 12-year-old boy, if I said, why were you looking for me as three days ago, that would have gotten me a spanking. <laughs> not here, though. Jesus can get away with these things. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And this word he uses, must be, is a word that comes up a lot in Luke's gospel. And the word must be means it is absolutely necessary or it is essential that I would be in my father's house. It's the same word that Luke uses a few chapters later in Luke chapter nine when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I must suffer, I must die, I must be rejected, I must be raised. It is absolutely essential, it has to happen. Jesus is saying in a patriarchal society, no, 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 mom, dad, I was actually with my father and I was actually in his house and I was honoring him. And we get here this snapshot of Jesus' identity. What he's saying is, there's gonna be things that I have to do to be obedient to my father that you're not gonna understand. And they're actually gonna be difficult and they're actually gonna hurt you just like Simeon said. Because I have an ultimate allegiance to God as father and I know the task that is set before me and I know exactly what I have to accomplish. But it's easy for us to, be, to think this is more normal. We, the idea of God as father is very familiar. It's, very, um, it's not strange to us. But we've got to remember, in this particular time, God had not been referred to as father in this way ever before. In the Old Testament, we see God as father. Maybe it's the father of many nations, father of these patriarchs. But we never see God referred to in a personal, intimate way as father like this. And what Jesus is saying is I know him. 
I know him and I love him. And what we notice in the gospels is that Jesus is always pursuing relationship with his father. We're gonna see it in Luke. We're in Luke two and Luke four, we see Jesus being tempted. And when he's tempted, the first thing he says is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out the mouth of my father. Just a chapter later in Luke five, we see Jesus withdrawing to desolate places, withdrawing away from the people he was living life with to be with his father. Luke six, we see Jesus praying all night to his father. It says, all night before he chooses the 12 disciples. He was constantly with his father. In the same place in Jerusalem, 19 years later, we see Jesus praying to the father in John chapter 17. And he says, I'm praying, Father, that they may all be one, even as we are one. You know who Jesus was praying for? He's praying for us. Jesus was praying that we would have a relationship with the Father like he had. That we would have a oneness, that we would have an intimacy in our relationship with God, just like him. And this is where we get our next thing we want to learn from Jesus in 2017. Pursue an intimate relationship with God as Father. In 2017, we want to pursue an intimate relationship with God as Father. If Jesus was the God-man, the sinless one, and he was saying, it is absolutely necessary for me to be with my Father, how much more is it absolutely necessary for us to pursue a relationship with God? And the thing is, too, this is a great privilege. I think we forget this. We miss this sometimes as we get in the, the drab of normal life. The idea that we were created above all else, more than to work, more than to be parents, more than any of the things that God has given. We were created to know God. And we were created to be in a relationship with him. And in the beginning, God created man, he created Adam and Eve, and they were in a perfect relationship with him. But then it was fractured. One decision, the fruit of the tree is eaten, and there is sin that's entered the world, and his relationship with God is now broken. And what we see in this passage is a 12-year-old boy who is going to have to die. A 12-year-old boy who is going to have to take on the sin of humanity upon himself and die and raise. And he knows this. The idea that we could know God, the God of the universe, the God who knows every grain of sands on Tybee Island and Folly in Charleston and every beach across the world, the God who knows every single grain of sand, who is aware of it, who knows every hair on each person's head in this room and across the universe, who numbered and named the stars and the 10 billion galaxies in the cosmos, this God who is above us and who is other than us and who is bigger than us and who is greater than us, this God says, no, I actually want to know you and I want you to know me and not just to know me, but I want you to call me father. And this is an intimate relationship. This is awesome. He says, I want to adopt you into my family. I want to give you all the rights of a son or daughter. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great pastor, said, when we read the Lord's Prayer and we see the words, our Father, we should just put our hand over our mouth and gasp at the reality that we get to call such a Godfather. It should move us, change us. It's a privilege, you see. But also, we've got to know, if we want to pursue an intimate relationship with God as Father, we've got to have a plan. The plan is essential. We can't just realize it and be aware of the privilege. We have to have a plan. The biggest hindrance for me 
and connecting with God is distractions and not having a plan. There's different distractions that come my way. I forget to do this. I'm not spending time with God the way I should. And I don't actually have a plan for how I'm gonna do it and when I'm gonna do that. And I like to think of it as, as like date night. Lauren and I, one of our goals is to try to do date night every week. We don't do it every week. Things, life happens and sometimes we don't get to do it. But our goal is just to get together without the kids, go on a walk, go to a park, grab dinner, do something for us to connect with each other in our marriage. But one thing I've noticed about date night is it doesn't just spontaneously happen. Wish it did. You don't drive home from work one day and just say, okay, let's go. Let's do this. No, there's got to be a plan in place. Who's taking care of the kids? We're going to get a babysitter? Okay, who's going to do that? Where do you want to go? Do you want to go to a park? Do you want to go eat? What have we got in the date night budget? What does this look like? And we have to have a plan in place in order to connect with each other. And once we're there, that's when the relationship happens, right? That's when we talk. That's when we're sharing our heart. That's when we're explaining different things that are going on in our life. But oftentimes, we'll plan everything in our life, but we don't plan the things that are most important. And sometimes it's difficult as we get in the busyness of life to just be reactive in our relationship with God. So our homework for us tonight, or today, this afternoon, is to sit down, make a plan. How are you, how are you planning on connecting with God in the new year? What's that look like? And look, I understand there's busyness, there's jobs, people are running companies, people are traveling. There's all kinds of things that are challenging to this. It doesn't mean we have to sit down for an hour with the Bible every single morning. It doesn't have to look like that. But if you're a mom, say you're a mom and you've got a new baby, you're rocking that baby to sleep multiple times a day, every night. What if you just pulled out your phone on the Bible app and read a psalm, just prayed through it? God, I want to know you. I want to love you. Or you're home and you're uh, cutting the grass, getting the iPod out, putting some worship music on, thinking about the lyrics. What does this song mean? How can I know you more, God? Or maybe you have a commute to work, 15, 20 minute commute to work. Instead of calling a buddy or looking on your phone or listening to music, turn the music off and just pray. God, I just wanna connect with you. I wanna know you. What would it look like if our church made this our number one priority in this year? What if we all said, hey, we want to know God, and we want to do whatever it takes to put our relationship with him first, and whatever that looks like, we just want to know him. And what if we were marked as a church by the reality that, man, this church didn't have it all figured out, a lot of problems, broken people, this is a hospital for sinners, but I'll tell you one thing, they know God. They know their God, and they love him. They know him. I can see it in the way they talk. I can see it in the way they live their lives. I can see it in their actions. I can see it in what they think about. They know God. Jesus emphasizes the necessity to be with God, and so should we. But notice what happens next, verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That's Mary and Joseph. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And as a quick aside, I love this note that it talks about Mary and Joseph not understanding. See, Mary and Joseph would have an idea of what's happening because they had the angel come to them. They would know that this is a unique boy. This is God himself. But I think what's happening in this moment is Mary is realizing afresh Jesus' identity. This is not your average 12-year-old boy. He's with his father in his father's house. There's something different about him. I think she's being reminded of the fact that her son is God. 
And I love her response. She treasures these things. She thinks upon these things. Earlier in the account when this happens before, when the angel comes, she ponders and she thinks about what this means. What about Jesus? What does he do next? He does the next thing any 12-year-old boy would do. And I love this. Jesus says, did you not know? I must be my father's house. They come. He gets back in the band of people. They head back to Nazareth. And it says he submits to his parents. This is God himself humbling himself to submit to his parents. He doesn't, he doesn't perform any miracles, doesn't heal a leper, doesn't preach an awesome sermon. He just gets back on the road, goes back to Nazareth, and he humbly submits to his parents. Not flashy, it's not glamorous, but what he does is he just takes the next step. And for us, that's the last thing we wanna see from Jesus this morning. In 2017, this year, we need to take the next step. Real simple, real straightforward, we need to take the next step. And what's interesting is that Jesus's next steps were lived out in a very ordinary way. The next years of his life, he'd be spending time with his father, He'd be learning the family business. He'd be learning carpentry, how to work with his hands, how to build. He'd be learning what it looked like to be a Jewish boy. He'd be communing with God as his father. But 91% of Jesus' life was lived out in the ordinary. Isn't that amazing? From age zero to age 29, most, his, his public ministry began about 30. That whole part of his life was lived out in a pretty ordinary way. We get this one insight. Obviously, his birth was not as ordinary. We get this one insight at age 12, but it's the day-to-day one foot in front of the other, obedience to God, submission to his parents. And I'm, I'm actually really encouraged that Luke puts that in his narrative. Luke's a detail guy, he loves the details, and I love the fact that Jesus just goes to the next thing. He takes the next step. Because I think for me, oftentimes I get these visions of grandeur. Even if I'm thinking about a new year, I wanna see growth in this area of my life, or I wanna see this change, or I wanna do this better. And you have all these big ideas, and these big pictures, and these big pictures are great. Mallory and I, with the college ministry, when we, when we started the year, we took two sticky sheets and we put 30 years and 10 years and we just started dreaming about what God could do. And if God started answering our prayers, what could he do? And we, we had dreams that were all over the map about God reaching the 1040 window in Southwest China and SCAD students doing their craft overseas and all kinds of fun things. But I think oftentimes in the big picture dreaming, we miss the fact that the small moments make up the big. And the day in, day out, steps of obedience are what lead to the big things. So how do we serve God in the little moments, the minutia of life? This, this pastor, Michael Horton, said in his book, Ordinary, there was a monastic community, and this monastic community had a sign, and the sign read this. Everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. Everyone wants a revolution, Everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to do the dishes. And the way I like to look at it is, is a bit like a puzzle. My wife and her family love puzzles, okay? So go home for Christmas, there's four girls around the table and they're doing a puzzle. For me, that sounds like the most miserable thing in the entire world to do. I can't think of many things more miserable than that. I give you 251 things I'd rather do right now than a puzzle. I just, I can't stand them. But what they're doing is they got all these little pieces of cardboard cut up across the table and they're just putting one piece next to the other one, and another one, and another one. And it is monotonous, and it takes time, but at the end, we know what's created. See the big picture. And it all comes together 
one piece at a time. So this morning I ask you, what is the next step for you? What's the next step for you? What is the next step for you in obedience and your walk with God? And it's gonna look different for every person in this room. Maybe you're here and you've come this morning, you're not a Christian. This is all new to you, the idea of church, the idea of the Bible, you're not really sure what's going on. Hey, maybe the next step for you is just to explore what it looks like to consider Christ. To begin to read his word and pray a prayer that I love to tell people who aren't Christians to pray. Hey God, if you're real, would you just reveal yourself to me? Read a chapter of Luke a day, track along, and, ask, and pray God that prayer. God, if you're real, would you just reveal yourself to me? Maybe you're new to church, and you're a Christian, but this is all foreign and new, and maybe it just looks like beginning to read your Bible for the first time. Maybe it's a, a read the Bible in a year plan, starting out fresh. What does it look like for me to know this book that's sharper than a two-edged sword, that needs to inform every decision in my life, that I need to be obedient to and submissive to? Or maybe it's joining a community group, getting plugged in at the church. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's more something internal, and you've been around for a while, and, you, and this is just another day at church. But as you reflect on the year, and as you really think about it, there's been some things in your life that need to change. And the next step for you may be coming to your wife and saying, look, I hadn't been the husband I need to be. I'm sorry. I've failed you. And I want to do a better job of loving you and serving you this year. Or maybe it's your kids. Hey, look, I know work has been busy. I've been stressed out. I've had a lot going on. I know I missed a couple of your games. Look, I want to be here for you. I want to be a good dad. I want to be your number one fan. I want to encourage you. Hey, would you forgive me? Would you help me? I need help. This is my first time doing this. I need help. I don't know what it is for you, but we got to take the next step. You notice for me, as I've been praying and thinking through this passage, Lord, what's my next step for 2017? I want to be a servant. I want to be a better servant. I am not good at serving. <laughs> I realize that. So I'm praying, God, would you help me be a better servant to my wife? Would you help me be a better servant to my family? Would you help me be a better servant to this church? God, I need help from you to be a better servant. And I want to grow in this. This is the next step for me. As I'm reading God's word, he's convicting me. He's showing me, hey, this is what needs to happen in your life. I want to have a joyful heart while I'm doing the dishes. Amen to that? I cannot stand doing the dishes. I want to have a joyful heart while I'm doing them. I want to take the kids out for a break, or take the kids out for, to the park and give mom a break. Little ones running around the house. Our neighbors just had a baby across the street. I want to serve them. God, I need help to do this. This is the next step for me. So we find ourselves this morning, in the morning of a new year, and it's a fresh start. What if we took the advice of Jesus in the most unsuspecting place as a 12-year-old boy, and this year we pursued being humble learners in an intimate relationship with God as Father, and we just took the next step? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we believe, Lord, that it has the power to change us. And God, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to know what it looks like for us to take the next step. We need to know what it looks like to connect with you in this new year. And Lord, we praise you for fresh starts. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that your faithfulness is great to us. Lord, we thank you that in Christ, we are a new creation. 
And Lord, the gospel is sweet to us this morning. So we thank you for it. And I pray that as we sing and as we worship, Lord, would you, would you set our attention and our affections on the Savior? Would you give us your spirit to focus on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his continuing love for us? We pray it all in his name.